Good afternoon or good morning, as the case may be, and thank you for coming to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're here to talk about a book that the Cato Institute is releasing today. The title of that book is Recovery, A Guide to Reforming the U.S. Health Sector. And uh, I'm the author of that book, so, so I'm very excited to present it to you today and very excited to get feedback uh, on the book from our guests. Our guests are, from uh, my far left, Sarah Dash, President and CEO of the Alliance for Health Policy and Lauren Adler, a scholar from the Brookings Institution, b both here in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're gonna, I, the way this event is gonna go, I'm gonna say a little bit about the book, try to introduce you to the book, comments from both uh, Sarah and Lauren, and then we're gonna turn the, uh, uh, turn the mic over, as it were, to the audience. We will be taking your questions uh, in person from those of you who, who are here in the Cato Institute's Hayek Auditorium. We'll also be taking questions from those of you who are watching online. Uh, you can submit those questions uh, wherever you're watching uh, this event uh, using the hashtag CatoEvents. And uh, they'll show up on this iPad that I've got right here, and I'll do my best to answer and get through as many of those questions as I can. Uh, I was telling uh, Lauren and Sarah earlier, I, you know, you might not be able to tell, but I do, do try my best with Slido. So uh, with that, Welcome, Lauren and Sarah. Uh, anything you want to uh, uh, share uh, before uh, we dive into the material? Um, no, I think we can do the, I can introduce myself a little bit more maybe once uh, we get going. Okay, that sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks right. for having us. Excited to be here. Sure. So uh, this is the book, Recovery, A Guide to Reforming the U.S. Health Sector. And I'm going to uh, walk through just a couple of the themes uh, that, that I touch on in the book in the hope of expanding its audience a little bit. Uh, and, and the way I'm gonna do that is first, let me see if this, if this fellow works. If we could pull up the first slide and then I'll start advancing them. Oh, well look, we did pull up the first slide, they're just not on the screen in front of me. Okay, <laughs> so this is the book. This is the book. And if you know anything about me, if I've achieved any notoriety in this world at all, it's for the work that I did trying to stop Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you'll see some of the accolades or not quite accolades that I got for that work in some of these, in some of these slides. And unfortunately, in the United States hyperpartisan political climate, that means that half of the country will be open to my book and the other half will absolutely not. Un uh, doubly unfortunate, most of the people who work in health policy are in that second group. So what I want to do today is, uh, is say that if you are in that second group, I want to beseech you to give this book a chance. Uh, there's, uh, because there's more for you in this book than you might think. Recovery is fundamentally about making healthcare more universal and restoring your right to make your health decisions. How, how so, you might ask? Well, let's st start with a chart from this book. Okay, here we go. Here's that chart. Uh, this chart, this chart sh summarizes the results of a series of experiments that several employers ran. Uh, and an amazing thing happened in those experiments, something you almost never see in healthcare, at least not in the United States, prices fell. 
In these studies, employers tested an innovation that consistently and dramatically reduced healthcare prices in a very short period across a wide range of services. Those services included, as you can see, MRI scans, CT scans, knee and shoulder arthroscopy, cataract removal, hip and knee replacement, colonoscopy, lab tests, and for every one of these medical services, the innovation these employers tested causes, caused prices to fall immediately and significantly without denying anyone access to the care that they needed. The innovation was even able to overcome the market power of monopolistic hospitals and get them to reduce their prices too. And the academics who published the study where the, from uh, the, the results of these experiments, including uh, health economist James Rob J Jamie Robinson at uh, UC Berkeley believe this innovation could bring down prices even more than they did in these experiments. So for we supporters of universal health care, this is the best news you've ever heard. And this is the most important chart you've ever seen. Because if what you want is to make health care more universal, what you want more than anything is falling medical prices. Falling prices make health care more universal three times over. First, they bring health care and health insurance within the reach of those who previously could not afford them. They therefore shrink the number of people who cannot afford the medical care they need. Two, they reduce the cost of helping people who still cannot afford the care that they need. That group is now smaller and health care prices are lower, so it's easier to provide care for them. And three, they leave the rest of us with more resources uh, because we too benefit from lower medical prices, making it easier for us uh, to help that now smaller group of people. So if universal health care is your goal, falling prices, this chart should be your obsession. It is not government programs that made food so universal that we're now keeping 8 billion people alive on this planet, a record, 8 billion people. It was first and foremost falling food prices. Now, as always, there's both good news and bad news here. The good news is someone discovered an innovation capable of overcoming the market power of monopolist providers to reduce prices and make healthcare more universal without denying care to anyone. The bad news is this innovation is giving people less health insurance. The employers and insurers who ran these experiments noticed three things. First, providers were charging wildly varying prices for certain services. Hospitals charged anywhere from $12,000 to $60,000 for hip and knee replacements, for example. Two, those high prices did not correlate with quality. It could fi find no evidence that those prices correlated with quality. It was ju just an example of providers using their market power to charge prices as high as they could. Uh, and three, for all their vaunted purchasing power, not even huge health insurance companies like Aetna or huge employers like the state of California could, for the life of them, negotiate those prices down. The innovation that those insurers and employers decided to test is something that we health wonks will call a reference price or a reverse deductible, which really just sort of clouds what's happening when we use terms like that. All they did, all those terms mean, is that insurers told patients, look, you can go to any hospital you want for your hip or knee replacement, but we're only paying $30,000. Take that $30,000 anywhere you like, but if the hospital you choose charges more than $30,000, 
you're paying for, for every penny in excess of that $30,000. You are on the hook for 100% of the marginal cost. In other words, this innovation gave patients less insurance than they had before when the insurance company would cover the full cost of those procedures. It therefore changed whose money was at stake. Instead of the insurance company being on the hook for the cost in excess of $30,000, patients were on the hook. It was the patient's money that was on the line, and that made patients care a lot more about the prices of those services. As a result of that one simple change, all sorts of amazing things happened. Things that definitely do not happen in healthcare, because healthcare is a special sector of the economy where these things definitely do not happen. First, patients started demanding price information from hospitals. Second, patients or hospitals furnished patients with useful price information. This reform delivered price transparency. And third, patients responded to those higher prices by changing their behavior. They increased the market share of low-price hospitals from 50% to more than two-thirds. And finally, hospitals responded by reducing prices. The chart shows average price reductions here, uh, and they were dramatic, but high-priced hospitals reduced their prices for hip and knee replacements mo even more dramatically than the average, about 37% per procedure, or $16,000, and that was over just a two-year period. When do you ever see prices falling that much in healthcare? It's very rare. Some hospitals uh, were getting so killed by losing mar loss of market share that they went to insurance companies and said, can we reopen our contracts so that we can reduce our prices? So price-sensitive consumers in these experiments did what large employers and insurance companies, and for that matter, the Department of Justice could not. They broke monopolies, all without denying care to anyone. And there's an important lesson here, uh, I think. In the United States, the pursuit of universal health care has largely taken the shape of having government encourage more and more health insurance. All sorts of government policies push in that direction. The tax preference for employer-sponsored health insurance, mandated benefits laws at the state and federal le level that require consumers to purchase essential coverage. Uh, the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, CHIP, uh, HIPAA, Obamacare, all these policies and all the while advocates of universal health care wonder why prices keep rising. Now note that the experiments in this chart were pure austerity. All they did was take something away from patients. They took away coverage for the, the share of the cost of these services in excess of the reference price. Uh, and yet, no one lost access to care. Everyone was fine, well, except for the except for the price-gouging, uh, inefficient, monopolistic providers. They lost market share. That's a feature, though, not a bug. The price reductions even reduced the cost of health insurance for every one of these patients' co-workers. Now, recovery does not advocate austerity. These, these experiments were just austerity. That is not what recovery is advocating. It does not propose to take this one successful innovation we all found and have government mandate it. The healthcare industry wouldn't stand for that anyway. Uh, the, uh, the benefits would not be salient to workers, and the industry would use uh, their, their substantial lobbying budgets to, uh, uh, to scare workers off of that sort of a, an approach and ultimately kill that reform. What recovery proposes to do is something different. To make, consumer, to make healthcare more universal by letting consumers control all 4.7 trillion dollars that's sloshing around in the U.S. health sector, most of which consumers spend under the incentives that we saw 
that led to the high prices that this experiment was trying to reduce. That way, consumers could choose whether this type of insurance feature is right for them, and Recovery proposes to do this uh, with tools that I, I, I think should apply to, or should appeal to people of both political parties and across the ideological spectrum. Uh, First, it would do so by using traditionally democratic public option principles to reform the Medicare program, which, by the way, would put an end to how the pharmaceutical, hospital, and insurance industries have captured that program. It would also do so, do so by discarding the worst parts and keeping the best parts of tax-free health savings accounts, uh, eliminating a lot of the parts of tax-free health savings accounts that de Democrats tend not to like and preserving the parts that Republicans tend to like. Uh, recovery further proposes to make healthcare universal by eliminating barriers to proven ways of reducing the problem of pre-existing conditions and, bar and barriers to nurse practitioners and other mid-level clinicians practicing to the full extent of their training by reducing barriers to women exercising their right to choose contraception by eliminating unwise medical malpractice liability reforms, improving care for veterans, the list goes on. If you, if you are of a, you know, Alan Antoven sort of uh, bent and you uh, believe that integrated prepaid health plans like Kaiser Permanente uh, do a lot to improve the quality and reduce the cost of health care. There's something in recovery for you. If you believe that uh, the United States should emulate other countries in how they uh, organize and deliver medical care, there's a lot uh, in, in recovery for you. It, it looks at what other countries are doing, and I'm just scrolling through these very quickly uh, because each one of these uh, uh, charts could be its own presentation. But in a lot of countries, people have more control over their health spending than they do in the United States. And I think uh, that there's something in recovery for you if you want us to emulate other countries. I mentioned mid-level clinicians including dental therapists, where there are barriers to them protect, to providing uh, more affordable uh, basic dental care to people uh, and pre-existing conditions. And finally, if you're not even a health wonk, if you're someone who cares more about, say, U.S. foreign policy than you do about making health care better and more affordable and more secure, then there's even something for you in recovery. And that is that uh, unbeknownst to most policymakers in Washington, D.C., including most foreign policy analysts, health policy has a huge impact on U.S. foreign policy, or maybe at least at the margins. And how is that? The way that the, that the U.S. Congress has structured veterans' benefits enables Congress to hide, to, uh, to ignore one of the largest financial costs of the United States military intervening in, in conflicts overseas. And that is the cost of veterans' benefits, which don't peak until decades after a conflict ends. And Congress doesn't pay those costs until, or doesn't try to meet those costs until they come due. So when Congress commits, or the president commits troops to battle, they can ignore one of the largest financial costs of of military conflict, and what recovery proposes is to allow is to require Congress to fund veterans' benefits up front, uh, an expense that will rise when Congress commits troops to battle, so that if Congress wants to intervene uh, in foreign conflicts, it has to give up more butter in order to get those guns, which means that in marginal cases, it might choose not to intervene at all or it might choose to withdraw, withdraw from uh, foreign conflict sooner, uh, all uh, uh, 
all of, all of which the reforms that recovery proposes to the Veterans Health Administration would achieve. So with that, uh, I want to suggest that if you support universal health care and the right of patients to make their own health decisions, there might be more for you in recovery than you might think, and I hope you'll give it a look. And with that said, I want to turn things over first to Sarah uh, to hear from her, uh, hear her comments on the book, and then Lauren. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, and it's great to see all of you here. And hello to our friends who are watching online. So as Michael said, I'm Sarah Dash. I'm president and CEO of the Alliance for Health Policy. We are a nonpartisan not-for-profit based here in DC. Um, we're actually about a 30-year-old organization. And I'm going to say a little bit more about the Alliance um, in a minute. But um, you might be kind of wondering why I'm here and what brought me to Cato. Well, first of all, thank you, Michael, for the kind invitation. Um, some, I thought it would be helpful to share a little bit about myself. So I grew up kind of in the era where we were all listening to Free to Be You and Me. And then um, I also now have my own five-year-old daughter who um, I believe will apply for an internship here at Cato because <laughs> she has made it very clear to me that she does not like people telling her what to do. <laughs> so um, <laughs> she has... Um, you know, a little bit of um, uh, footsteps to follow in there. And then something you might be surprised by is when I was a, in um, high school, I, I think I entered um, an essay contest focused on the Fountainhead. So I had a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of a libertarian streak there. Um, but then I went on um, and worked for a couple of the um, members of Congress who were the champions of the Affordable Care Act. So I think there's sort of a time 10 years ago or so when um, my sitting in this chair would have been kind of inconceivable, um, but I'm so happy to be here, and in part because I think um, the, the piece in between um, my, my growing up and coming to the Hill is I moved away from home when I was 16 to pursue a career in dance, and I feel very, very strongly and kind of come at health from that lens, which is that for people to um, really sort of achieve their optimal flourishing and their optimal potential, that health is a prerequisite to that. Uh, you know, maximizing our health, maximizing our um, our potential is is a key part of that. And so, so I believe very strongly in that. And then also kind of come at this from a more ecumenical sense, which is what brought me to the alliance, right? Which is that I believe we have a moral obligation to come and sit at one another's tables, whether or not we agree with everything that's being said. Uh, I think we're at a moment in time, a moment in history when um, we, we are in a hyper-partisan, even more partisan than um, when I worked on the Hill and it was during the ACA and sat and listened to um, constituents who had taken the time and trouble to drive you know, several hundred miles down to Washington, D.C. to tell me personally why they hated the Affordable Care Act, and that was during that Tea Party um, summer, if you if you all recall that. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll always remember that, because I think as much as I believed in the goals of the Affordable Care Act and the goals of affordable health care, um, universal health care that were being espoused by the ACA and the issues that the ACA was seeking to address, it's always kind of stuck with me that... Um, that fear and anger is out there about our healthcare system, and I think we are still in a place where people are, you know, still frustrated, still um, sort of not trusting that their health or financial needs will be taken care of, as well as, um, you know, kind of angry. And it's it's easy um, 
given how big our system is, to kind of blame one thing or another. But we are in a really low trust environment when it comes to trusting government, when it comes to trusting um, institutions in the private sector, and there's a lot of finger pointing happening. So part of why I'm here is to just try to engage in a conversation around um, what, what might be possible. So um, with that, let me just say a little bit about the Alliance and the work that we've done, and I think we're, we're, we're at a really interesting juncture here, you know, which is we are, um, we're, we're, I said we're nonpartisan, and, and then we're actually bipartisan, and then Michael introduced me to the term pan-ideological, which I think is even <laughs> better, um, because truly it's, it's not possible anymore in this day and age to kind of put people neatly into these categories, right? So I think one is we create a table that um, people who are serious about having an authentic conversation can come to that table and have that conversation. And second, we are multi-stakeholder, which means that um, we take our community very seriously here in the health policy world, which means that um, we are not trying to pick sides between um, doctors and hospitals or payers or pharma or consumers or people, right? And so we're, we're trying to really build that trust and create a table where people can take baby steps towards having a real authentic conversation. Recognizing that our system is really complicated and um, untangling some of the challenges and some of the um, distortions in our system is going to take um, a lot more work than a few conversations or roundtable salons. Like it's a, this is a long-term, probably next decade effort. Um, lastly, you know, we've we've been um, we've done a lot of interviews on the Hill with sort of bipartisan staff, and I think that um, what's interesting is I do think there's the recognition that coverage alone is not enough, that affordability is important. I think people are curious about that. Um, my own sense is that where there is an opportunity to bridge some of the partisan divide um, over the next several years to decade, it will be around the topic of affordability. Um, the question of how that gets done, um, I think that's a really important nut to be cracked. So with that, I'm looking forward to the conversation and um, to the conversation on the book. And thanks again for inviting me. Great. Uh, I guess I'll take that as my cue to, to <laughs> pipe in here. So. Uh, hi, I'm uh, um, great to see folks in the audience. I'm Lauren Adler, uh, fellow and associate director at the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institution, uh, just down the road uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've been doing health economics research for 10 years or so now and worked at, a, um, before Brookings, I worked at a couple bipartisan or centrist uh, uh, think tanks. The Brookings Institution is a large nonpartisan research institution, um, sort of, I, so I do a lot of you know, sort of academic style research on health economics, on provider pricing, insurance markets, uh, you know, wholesale kind of reforms to the system. Uh, and then, you know, I think like most folks in DC, do a fair amount, very policy focused on, uh, you know, trying to help folks make, uh, you know, the subjective optimal uh, policy decisions. But, uh, you know, I think opening the door to anyone who, um, you know, I think we do a lot of work with folks in both parties, um, even if they're sort of institution may have a, uh, you know, an impression uh, to a lot of the work we do crosses that boundary. Uh, I think my comments may kind of have a little bit of that also. So I thought, right, the book itself in my eyes sort of, it, you can kind of break it up into a little bit of, there's sort of the setup of what are the problems in the current system. And in that section, uh, sorry, there's sort of the setup and then there is the solution section. Uh, in the sort of setup and what the current problems are, uh, you know, I think I, there, I have a fair amount of agreement with uh, the book. So, 
right? There is a lot here. Um, you know, sort of start on the positive signs of uh, agreement, right? There clearly is a lack of competition in certain areas um, of healthcare that does stymie innovation and raise costs. I think many of those bring very little benefit. So, you know, the book talks a lot about, I want to say a lot of state-based policies that are kind of anti, that I would consider anti-competitive. So, you know, there are certificate of need laws that the sort of add extra regulation if you want to create a new hospital or create a new nursing home. Um, there's a lot of restrictions on uh, advanced practice practitioners, right? Your nurse practitioners who want to practice at the top of their license. I think that pretty clearly is having a competitive uh, effect on markets. I very strongly agree in the discussion on uh, much of the employer-based uh, tax exclusion. So, right, we have employer health care in this country. You, uh, you, know, you don't pay taxes on the benefits that your employer pays you. That very clearly at the margin is incentivizing uh, you know, employers to care less about the price and the cost of medical care. Um, and that is like, that is a clear big driver of the high prices we see in the system. Um, I, you know, I similarly agree much of the sort of current matching system in Medicaid uh, does create a number of perverse incentives here to, um, right, if you're going to get a federal match uh, for the dollars you spend, you clearly care less about spending at the margin. A lot of this sounds very, the economist lens on a lot of things, uh, you know, always uh, focused on the spending at the margin here. Uh, similarly, right, I agree FDA does have a lot of issues. I agree in many ways that they do tend to be too cautious in certain uh, approvals. Um, however, I think I, where I think I'm going to differ a lot is on the sort of solutions and what the counterfactual to some of this is. You know, I also think, you know, like some of the statements in the book I tend to, I think, take a kind of broad brush view to picking one piece of evidence and not the other. So, you know, there's statements about the sort of broad effects of Medicaid or Medicare coverage. Um, you know, when I, my read of sort of the best evidence out here is Medicaid and private insurance or ACA private insurance does substantially reduce mortality and has saved substantial lives. There's two good papers in, uh, in one of the sort of top econ journals from one from Sarah Miller and company and one from Jacob Golden and company the finding pretty strong, um, pretty impressive mortality, uh, you know, improving mortality, sorry, saving lives, uh, taking, stop using economist jargon here, uh, in terms of, of the sort of big programs here. And then, right, there's a lot of talk, and, uh, you know, I, I Michael's first slide here was, look, cost sharing, you know, having folks be liable for the sort of full cost um, on the margin of the service that they're buying, I think very clearly does reduce spending. I think it'd be kind of shocking if it didn't do that. Uh, but, the, you know, I, I think we also have evidence that it does so indiscriminately in the sense that folks seem to reduce spending equally on high value and low value care. Uh, and I just think that is something that needs to be, uh, to be wrestled with. Um, and I, I even agree with some of the, the bigger picture criticisms of, well, might not find them criticisms, but basically, right, the fact that a lot of our insurance regulations certainly do drive up costs. I think the fact that we have this big third-party subsidized system does mean that we pay more for health care. Again, where this is sort of gets to my, where I think I, I, I draw on the disagree is I, I think those exist for a reason. Uh, and basically, I think many government regulations uh, like sort of insurance community rating or something like that, where everyone sort of pay, you know, you have some way to buy into uh, insurance, even if you're sick. I think those are trying to solve fundamental problems. If your goal is that everyone should at least be able to have uh, access to health care, right? I think 
the book sort of talks a lot and sort of lays out what I kind of consider a, a dream world of, you know, everyone has perfect foresight. They're going to buy into these comprehensive major medical uh, things when they're perfectly healthy, and they're going to have the foresight to be in this, like, great plan. And it, there, will, there probably would be a market where you could buy into something uh, like that that could be guaranteed renewal. But even in that world, right, if you have an expensive medical condition, you are one missed payment away from destitution, right? Go to like the administrative burdens and things like that, right? If you miss one payment on your insurance policy from a private company who has all the incentive in the world to not to, to have you miss that payment, uh, right, then you are stuck and now you are shut out of this sort of cheap entry market and you are going to be paying full freight for your, uh, for your medical care. Uh, or, you know, say, what happens if you're insured? You had perfect foresight, but your insurer goes out of business. There's going to be some, this happens in the long-term care market today. There are some insurers who fundamentally misprice risk, and they think they're, you know, it's not that easy to price this policy that is guaranteed renewable for 100 years. Uh, that is going to be a hard thing. Some insurers are going to get it wrong, and if they get it wrong in a systematic way, that is going, that insurer is going to go out of business. And then you are, again, if you have an expensive health condition, you are going to be stuck in this, um, th this world here, right? Or, you know, take a disease that makes you lose income. You have your 50-year-old and you have cancer and you can't work anymore. Uh, you eventually, you know, maybe you, so take, you know, maybe you saved up for that, but take a 30-year-old who has the same situation um, who's not going to have any savings to kind of keep buying this coverage, and eventually you're kind of left in... Um, some charity care system that probably pops up um, at the back end uh, here. I also think a key thing without government regulation here is you'll no longer be able to get coverage for expensive services that afflict subpopulations, um, particularly ones that are, uh, that are based on observable characteristics like gender or race. So, you know, the example of a healthy 20-year-old woman who wants to get coverage is going to have to bear the full cost of the chance that she may have a baby, uh, right? That is going to be built into her premiums and not the 20-year-old man's, uh, even the sort of perfectly healthy. I think a big one here is drugs that target rare diseases. So, um, you know, right, anything where it is, especially based on observable characteristics. So, you know, I, I could imagine some world popping up where you actually are even buying this sort of coverage for your kids, right? Because some of this is like you have to have the fourth, your parents have had to have the forethought here to get you coverage when you were born. Um, but, you know, take a, a Jewish person who is having a kid and wants to get coverage for, say, there's a disease, a, a drug that treats Tay-Sachs or a black person who is trying to get coverage for a drug that treats sickle cell disease, right? They're just not going to be able to get that because that is very clear to the insurance company uh, up front. They can observe on observable characteristics uh, and that is going to be very difficult or, you know, with it, when it's not the parents. Take the person, the 20-year-old healthy person whose parents didn't have perfect foresight, and now they're buying insurance for the first time, but they have hemophilia, which means there is always a risk that they are going to need $100,000 worth of medical care um, at, one, at, at one issue. So uh, that is, it, an insurance company will likely know that or will try very hard to figure that out. Um, so I, I think that is an important, uh, an important thing uh, to consider uh, here. And similarly, you also have coverage you'll have difficulty trying to find coverage for anything that correlates to higher spending on other services. So there's a lot of evidence, and to be fair, this is difficult in our current situation too, but getting sort of affordable coverage for mental health care or for substance abuse, because that tells the insurance company you are also much more likely to need bigger medical, like other medical services or an inpatient stay um, and be very expensive. That, again, because that 
very difficult to find, or impossible, I would uh, probably argue, to, uh, to find coverage uh, for that. And again, right, I sort of tease this, but right, in a lot of these things, you need your parents to have had the perfect foresight here, which I, I think is just very difficult to imagine. And what do we, you know, if your parents didn't have that foresight and you're just sort of like tough luck, uh, I, I also kind of think just sort of politically, it's a pretty difficult to imagine that being uh, a world we end up in. You know, I, I, to me, it sort of all draws back to, I do think there is a trade-off here. I do think the sort of regulated system does mean that we are paying more uh, than we would otherwise. Although I would note that other countries just deal with this by having some sort of price setting, right? The other option here is, let's just say, you know, every insurance company has an option to, you know, to, to, to sign a contract to pay hospitals 200% of Medicare. They can still negotiate whatever they want below that, but they have some sort of option here, right? You can sort of get at uh, some of that cost issue uh, that way. Uh, but I agree, this is probably, it is driving up costs here. But I think, in my view, you know, you know broadly, that, that base piece is justifiable for the sort of safety net, the simplicity. And honestly, some of this, there's a lot of talk in the book about, you know, the sort of the innovation that the U.S. currently has and sort of currently in sense. Some of that is based on the fact that we have high spending or the example of hepatitis C drugs, for instance, comes up, which is a drug that, uh, sorry, a disease that primarily afflicts lower income uh, individuals. To me, that is something that our current system actually is the thing that provided the resources such that there was incentives to invest and create a hepatitis C medic and Medicaid in particular, right? If there was no coverage for lower income folks, it is very difficult to imagine it have been, a, been financially beneficial to develop uh, that drug. Or again, back to the sort of rare disease type of populations, I, I think there, this sort of world leads you to a place where there is no financial incentive to create the drug that, that cures Tay-Sachs or something along those, uh, along those lines. I also think this comes up in a lot of these healthcare decisions and I think discussions and I think uh, maybe puts at odds with I think how most people think about it is there's a lot of trashing on our current health healthcare system, some of which I agree with. I think there's plenty of things that does bad. And while I don't want to be like completely broad brush, there's plenty of those sort of criticisms that I very much agree with and think should be solved maybe in somewhat similar manners to, um, to Michael. But I, I also think that, especially for folks in employer healthcare, it's kind of the sort of, you know, the same thing folks say about Congress that, right, everyone hates health insurance industry and hates health insurance, but most folks are, think their, their employer-based plan works decently, right? This is sort of an every time it's come up of like blow up the system type of reforms, whether that's sort of single payer Bernie Sanders style solutions or the sort of more libertarian style solutions, the kind of thing is like, well, I kind of like my employer-based plan. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. I get coverage if I get sick. I'm, I get this covering the hospitals I want to go to. I have access to care, and it's, it's, it works decently well. And same thing with Medicare, right? Folks are getting access to care, and it's imperfect, but it is, I, you know, I don't know, the, it's not perfect, right? It is decent, and it is, I think most folks are relatively happy when you sort of talk about the sort of more blow up uh, and completely change the, uh, the sort of system uh, here. So I'll close on that because I think that uh, there's sort of a lot of DC circles, both left and right, there's a lot of trashing in the current health care system, but I do think it's worth noting that it, it works decently well for most people, even if it is similar to leaving some falling through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that, I think, if I, if I could, I mean, I think, you know, lesson we learned certainly lived through it um, as a staffer, right? It's, it's what people are afraid to lose. Like, the, it's the devil you know, <laughs> and it's um, the fear of the unknown, whether that 
solution be, you know, a, a government, more government solution or a more like go it alone kind of solution? Um, you know, I think um, really appreciate your analysis of this. And I think there's just like my assessment of this is that um, so a couple things, right? I think we, we definitely need new, more nuance in our policy conversations. I think, you know, uh, Michael, in the, in the book, a lot of the, um, the assessment of some of the problems, the quality challenges, the, um, you know, we, we spend a lot, but, you know, our life expectancy, our, per, you know, our, our health um, isn't really living up to the amount that we spend. I think those are all probably challenges that everybody could agree on. Um, I would say, I think where we get into trouble is when there's like blanket kind of statements about it's the government or, you know, on the flip side, like, oh, it's the private sector. And um, that's, I think that's kind of what stops some people from coming into a room and having a conversation. Um, there's some things in there here where I think there could be like room for, definitely room for conversation, room for um, even maybe agreement or progress. And then there's others that would be non-starters for people who kind of, um, you know, spent blood, sweat, and tears, like, working on the ACA and, you know, those kinds of things. Like, repealing it isn't going to happen. But I think we also need to recognize, like, we're in a moment in history where we are still, we're, I think part of what our challenge is as a country is that we're building on some things that were kind of historical accidents, like the employer-sponsored tax exclusion, and that have kind of become embedded in what the expectations are. And then for me, the interesting question is, what does good look like going forward? And then what's the process by which we actually have that conversation to think about what the trade-offs are? You know, the trade-offs between risk, like the risk that my child might have um, a rare genetic disease, um, you know, and the choice. Like, I would like to choose, um, you know, whether I see a nurse practitioner or a physician, and I'd like to choose kind of where I go for care. Um, you know, the choice between like financial security, like I just want it to be protected, you know, versus, hey, I'm willing to take a little bit more financial risk on myself if it meant um, paying less, you know? And I, I think some of it is just like, we, we have to get to a better place where we can have adult conversations about these kinds of trade-offs um, in a way that's um, more focused on getting it right than being right if that makes sense. So um, I'll just tag that on okay. before you move to your next right. question. Thank you both for, for your comments. And I want to issue a correction. I think I gave the wrong hashtag for, to our Sorry. online audience. If you want to submit a question online, use the hashtag Cato Health. Uh, Cato Health will send your question to this uh, here for a fancy iPad, and I'll be able to ask it. Um, I, I, I want to, if I can, respond to Sarah and Lauren. Um, uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, and my, my broad response is that there's, there's this tendency, I guess not just in health policy, but especially in health policy, to say that if I can identify a problem with that approach over there, then we cannot use that approach. And if you're, if you're someone who's very skeptical of markets and healthcare, you might find a way that people might fall through the cracks of a market system in healthcare and say, well, then we can't have that. We have to do this other thing. That can be extremely unhelpful and even uh, uh, counterproductive and harmful if you don't apply the same scrutiny to that other thing over here. 
if you assume that this is a nirvana, that we can, that, that if we avoid bad things over there, then there won't be any bad things over here. And so what I try to do in the book is I try to do what they, the, the economists call a comparative institutions approach and look at both what happens in markets and what happens when markets, individuals, consumers, entrepreneurs make decisions versus what happens when government makes those decisions in their stead. Uh, and I'm going to have a bit to say about that uh, in a moment, but uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things that Lauren raised is there's a literature on the effects of health insurance and health insurance subsidies on health. And there have been a couple studies recently that have said that uh, there is a positive impact that when the, the, the Obamacare expanded health insurance coverage, fewer, fewer people died. And uh, we, could, we, we could talk about those studies. Uh, those, uh, I think the most important thing to say about them is that they are anomalous. That most of the uh, well-designed, uh, reliable studies that are out there have found that uh, consistent results uh, that, uh, that say that uh, expanding health insurance coverage or, or struggle to find any impact of health, uh, expanding health insurance coverage on health. This includes not just uh, uh, observational studies like the ones uh, that you're, uh, well, one of them I think was a quasi-randomized study, yeah. but multiple randomized controlled trials that have struggled to f or found zero impact of uh, health insurance expansions on health. And, I, and that's in addition to um, observational studies about the Medicare program and other programs that have also found uh, no evidence that they improved health. Uh, Lauren mentioned uh, uh, that when you give people control over, say, that $4.7 that trillion that they spend on, uh, that we currently spend on health care in this country, they might cut back in ways that harm, on health consumption, me medical consumption, in ways that harm their health. And that's certainly possible. In, in fact, I think that that probably does happen. But again, what uh, multiple randomized controlled trials have found is that when people do that, when people consume less medical care, the net impact on health is zero or not, uh, not detectable. And what that means is that if people are cutting, it suggests that people are not cutting back in indiscriminate ways. Or if they are, they're cutting back on helpful medical care at, at the same uh, rates that they're cutting back on harmful medical care. Because those two things would have to go hand in hand if you're going to get uh, no effect from uh, people having less health insurance. Finally, on a comparative oh, uh, next, on a comparative institution's uh, 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 approach to these questions, Lauren, you mentioned a lot of ways that a, a completely unregulated market in health insurance could leave people falling through the cracks if they have um, an uninsurable pre-existing condition, if they didn't enroll in coverage when they, uh, had, when they were healthy and could afford the premiums, if their parents didn't enroll them in coverage. And those are all ways that people could fall through the cracks of the health sector. Um, but all of those things were present in one of the studies that I cite, and I had even had on one of the slides, that showed that prior to the Affordable Care Act, if you enrolled in coverage through the uh, individual market, which means that insurers could underwrite you, they could charge you higher premiums, what they generally did was not, uh, uh, was they, if you enrolled when you were healthy and then got an expensive illness, you would keep paying healthy person premiums and they uh, guaranteed they would not cancel your coverage. That guarantee might fall through. But what happened was people uh, in that market 
even once they got sick, ended up in poor health, they lost their coverage less often than people in employer-sponsored insurance. Now, why is this important for a comparative institution's analysis? Because the type of insurance that the government had been favoring through the tax code is employer-sponsored insurance. Nine out of 10 people with private coverage get it through an employer. That means that the government was effectively penalizing this other market that was more secure than employer-sponsored insurance because your coverage did not disappear when you lost your job. So with all of the things that can go wrong in all of those markets, it, the uh, a re relatively unregulated market for health insurance was making health insurance more secure for people in poor health than, um, than the type of insurance that government favored. And you could say, well, we can use the government to fix that problem then if the government is uh, is is if the tax code is favoring a type of health insurance that's, that throws people out uh, of their coverage after they get sick and leaves them with an uninsured and uninsurable pre-existing condition, I've got news for you. People have been trying to do that. The government has been trying to do that for decades. And yet for almost a century at this point, the government has been uh, ha has left that policy in place, fueling the problem of pre-existing conditions by throwing people out of their coverage. And rather than fix that problem, the government has try been trying to clean up the mess that it made by favoring employer-sponsored insurance with such uh, additional interventions as the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, the uh, uh, the uh, consolidated omnibus, uh, the COBRA, um, the uh, HIPAA, the uh, Affordable Care Act, CHIP, all of these f additional government interventions uh, because government is not very good at solving the problem that that study uh, identifies, uh, a problem that makes government, um, uh, that highlights that government is very bad at making these decisions and certainly no nirvana. When it comes to maternity coverage, I mean, that's another example of how people could fall through the cracks of, a, of the sort of system that, uh, that I recommend in the book. But another implication of the evidence that I provided the book, including that one most important chart in health policy, is that we, uh, the, the fact that we are insuring uh, uncomplicated deliveries to the extent that we are is probably increasing the price for uncomplicated deliveries to the point where people feel that they need health insurance, or at least more people feel they need, that they need health insurance to cover those deliveries, whereas if we were not insuring them so heavily, more people could afford those, uh, those expensive out of expenses out of pocket and still have coverage there for uh, complicated deliveries. Uh, and finally, as a, uh, another example, um, uh, oh, uh, another example of a comparative institution's analysis is that uh, you might say, well, one way of fixing the problems that uh, exist in a, an unregulated health insurance market and the employer market is to put everyone in a market for health insurance like the Affordable Care Act creates. Uh, and as one of the questioners asked uh, about, like the uh, uh, like Switzerland has. They basically in Switzerland have an ACA-like model. Why not do that and just ban insurance companies from discriminating on the basis of pre-existing conditions? Well, as I discuss in the book, as it turns out, those very regulations, which are really just price controls, they're nothing fancier than government price controls, are making coverage worse for people with expensive conditions because they don't eliminate the economic uh, 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 reality underlying high prices for people with expensive illnesses. What they do is they force market actors to deal with those underlying economic realities in a different way, or as uh, Michael Garuso, who is now an economist, 
with uh, the Biden administration argues in a, uh, 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 through a series of papers that he and colleagues have done on these sorts of price controls, they require insurance companies to engage in backdoor discrimination that according to Garuso and his colleagues, leave even healthy people with inadequate health insurance because uh, coverage for many expensive conditions is getting worse. Uh, those regulations require insurance companies to engage in a race to the bottom to make coverage less uh, comprehensive for illnesses like multiple sclerosis and other uh, expensive conditions. So if you take a comparative institution's analysis, I think that the argument for individual choice and, um, and, and market competition is much stronger than if you uh, make sort of an uh, appeal to, to a, a nirvana that does not exist. Um, and, and with that, I do want to get to some questions, but if uh, Sarah or Lauren want to respond uh, to that, I want to give you a chance. That's great. Well, thank you. We, you said a lot. Um, so I, I'm curious to hear what the audience questions are. I mean, I do have to say, I think, first of all, I think there's like no appetite for relitigating some of the arguments that, um, you know, we, we dealt with during the Affordable Care Act. I think there were... Um, significant problems in the individual market as it stood that were well documented. I remember the hearing on insurance rescissions, um, which I think three, um, you know, well-known health insurance executives kind of admitted to um, rescinding coverage for people once they got sick. Um, but, you know, and, and then on the maternity coverage, I think we can all remember the hearing where, you know, um, one of the senators said, well, I think your mother, you know, needed, needed health insurance. So I, I think, you know, I just want to be careful that, like, we're moving forward and not backward and, and rehashing kind of old um, conversations. I think that said, I think one of the challenges that we continue to face, and I, I truly, I don't know um, the best way to get out of this, but I, I do think the paradigm of coverage in, in our country has been sort of like one group and then another group and then another group, right? And that's what has caused... I mean, I think you're right. The tax treatment of ESI, you know, part of the, the point of, um, you know, the advanced premium tax credits and the ECA was to try to, like, equalize some of that out, right? I mean, you're suggesting a different way to equalize, equalize it a little bit more, right? But um, at the end of the day, you know, we, first we chose people with, with employer-sponsored coverage, you know, then we chose um, seniors, then we chose, you know, poor people or frail. And I think one of the challenges that we face and sort of why I, why I'm, I may be a little more of the philosopher in this conversation than, you know, I don't want to go back and forth on the studies as much, but that current of fear and frustration and anger that I think is there, um, in the citizenry is like, great, I'm going to like hold on to what I have, um, you know, and, um, the fact is that we've sort of balkanized the way that we cover people based on circumstances that maybe aren't as relevant anymore or don't apply. I mean, right, like, if we want to talk about freedom and flourishing, right, like, nobody wants to be stuck in a job that they no longer like, but, you know, if, it, if they have to stick with it because of health insurance, then they're going to stick with it. That's kind of why the ACA tried to create um, a little bit more of a level playing field, right, like with exchanges. So I think some of what we're talking about definitely is on the margins, but I, I just, I will say, I, I think we need to find ways to move forward in the conversations and, you know, we are going to kind of have to figure out ways to work with what we have rather than um, 
you know, I, I mean, I'd love to do a tabletop exercise where we like blow the whole thing up and, <laughs> and find ways to maximize human um, freedom and flourishing, you know, and lower costs and get to universal coverage. But um, I don't know that, like, we have to wor work with those guys down the street too. So um, <laughs> I'll just yeah. put that out there. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, just quickly, I think three, just sort of three kind of points on what you said, Michael. I mean, I think one where there is, it's hard to resolve discussion uh, or sort of question is just, right, yes, it is true that many of the sort of community rating and guaranteed issue regulations do have some of these unintended consequences where they do slightly, somewhat modestly weaken sort of coverage for high cost conditions. I think where in the sort of comparative question here, I think where I differ is I think that having decent but imperfect coverage is better than having no coverage. And I, I think that is, and obviously, yes, it may be, right, there are more people now having the decent rather than, you know, higher but better coverage. I, I, I agree there's trade-offs here. Uh, I just think that is better than having a good chunk of folks who would have no coverage, right? Between, before Medicare, 50% of seniors were uninsured. I, I, the book touches on some of that is because this everyone was in employer coverage. I think that's right, but it would be high. There'd be, it's, we're talking probably like a quarter of the population here. Uh, like it's just a lot of folks who have no coverage in that situation. Uh, you know, I think one other point is there's a lot of talk about sort of shopping and sort of consumer shopping can reduce prices. And I think that's true for the subset of services that were on that slide there. But look, most healthcare spending is on high cost hospital care, inpatient stays once you're, you know, have an expensive condition and you're at the hospital. I think it's somewhat difficult to imagine the consumers doing that shopping such that you would end up with these insurance intermediaries that are envisioned in this world. But I think you're inevitably having in some intermediary, you can call them an insurance company or whatever, but is doing the bargaining on the, uh, could be an employer, whatever, is doing the bargaining on their behalf. Um, and I think, sorry, the first one, I think an important thing here is the sort of comparison between losing coverage under employer coverage versus the sort of, you know, less regulated market is that's not really the relevant counterfactual anymore. The relevant counterfactual now is employer market plus you do have an option if you lose your employment and it's not just COBRA, right? You can go on an ACA plan and you have some, or, you know, if you are low enough income, you can go on Medicaid. There are other options and you are kind of never... There's no option where you can't get your condition um, insured. And then lastly, which I think is really too hard to litigate on a stage like this, is I, I would object to the characterization that the sort of studies I highlighted on insurance and Medicaid's effect on mortality are anomalous. I think basically every previous study is underpowered to detect changes in mortality. It is very difficult to affect, like not that many people die in a year um, compared to sorry, as a percentage of the population, uh, such that it is very difficult to detect uh, effects on that, on that margin, um, and such that I think the sort of more recent literature as econometric tools have gotten more sophisticated are really like the best studies we have. Like the, Medi the Oregon Medicaid experiment was, I think, seemingly pretty clearly underpowered to detect, uh, just like there weren't enough people basically in the randomization to tell uh, whether there were effects on mortality. I, that's, again, I think too litigate to go into a, you know, methods on the stage here, but I uh, sort of let my, my piece be known. I think I, I object to the characterization. Really interesting aspects of, of health, uh, healthcare research that even where those studies did have sufficient power, 
when they were measuring things like blood pressure levels and HbA1c levels and all sorts of measures that were amenable to medical care within the time frame of the study, where there were enough of people with those conditions that if there were an effect of health insurance, there should the studies should have been able to detect it. What the Rand Health Insurance Experiment and the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, the Miller Experiment in Ghana, the Miller Randomized Control Trial in India, all found was that they measured for all sorts of uh, health outcomes that should have, the studies had enough power to detect an, an effect, and they all found no effect on physical health outcomes. This, this isn't a situation where we should say, oh, well, uh, but the mortality effects, uh, uh, we, or we shouldn't believe because the studies were underpowered. What these studies should do is they should suggest to us that maybe there's something we're missing about healthcare, about how healthcare works out there on the flat of the curve. And maybe it doesn't impact uh, health as much as we should, even where we expect that it would when it comes to mortality. And so that's why I say that those uh, studies are anomalous because there is a vast literature, and it's not just randomized controlled trials, although those are the most reliable studies out there. There's also, you know, Amy Finkelstein's look at Medicare in the first 10 years of its operation that found uh, no detectable impact on mortality, even where you had an enormous sample size and a research design that, while not randomized, uh, was uh, uh, plausibly should have picked up an effect of, of that health insurance expansion. Can I just on jump mortality. in for a sec? Because I think I think one of the things, because we can go back and forth. I think two points. One, um, you know. And there probably isn't time to go all into the depth of like social drivers of health here and community health, but I do think you know it's pretty well known, and I think everyone kind of acknowledges like health happens also outside of the doctor's office, right? And so, right, like the fact that I mean we do we have a little bit of an income inequality problem here, and a poverty problem, and a racial inequity problem in our country um, when it comes to all of those things, um, and that's something that we need to deal with. Um, so that's that's sort of that's sort of one. Um, I, I, I think the other is like, uh, the point I keep wanting to make is we can argue about the studies and the methodology like up here, like till kind of the cows come home. But I think that mostly what we need in our country is a little bit more of a values driven conversation about where can we maybe agree on some of the ideas and the ideology. And I will say, you know, one thing that I, I think was sparked for me by by sort of um, um, your book, Michael, but also kind of some of our conversations, is this idea that it's like, who gets to decide, right? I mean, Lauren, you said, well, if someone loses their job, they there's really, you know, pretty much everyone has an option. Well, not in states that have not expanded Medicaid, right? Well, can we like just be honest about the map and which states haven't expanded Medicaid and like what, choices we've put in the hands of government in those states versus in the hands of the people, right? So like, I do think that that's something we need to think about. I think that the, the idea of, you know, how do you get to a system that's got a little bit less coercion and control over people's individual choice of where they want to put their money, you know, would I rather put my money towards more comprehensive insurance coverage or would I rather put my money towards, I don't know, you know, like a healthier diet and more fruits and vegetables? Like I, I do kind of see I can see where there can be some some give there, right? Um, and like the question is, how do we how do we do that? Um, 
you know, but um, you, I mean, you look at Medicaid redeterminations, lots of people have lost their coverage for reasons, you know, maybe some of them really weren't eligible um, anymore for Medicaid, um, but, you know, lots of people are losing coverage because they didn't fill out the paperwork correctly, right? And um, I, I, I just think that's a problem we need to acknowledge is that we are not only um, making choices as institutions that are different based on people's different life circumstances that they couldn't control, but um, that we're also, um, I, I don't think having a really honest conversation about that. Um, and that might be, I think that might be the next sort of 20, 30 years of health reform is like thinking about how do we solve for that. And But you, I think you raised an important point, which is that from the perspective of a, an average consumer or a low-income worker, uh, what, what might be most important to them uh, might not be that last increment of health insurance. Right. Uh, it might be that the ability to buy fresher fruits and vegetables or move into a neighborhood where that's easier, where their housing uh, is in a safer place or a cleaner place so that their kid, so that the mold doesn't send into their kid to the emergency room uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. with such frequency. Yeah. And, and the, the challenge there is, uh, as you say, who decides? Who decides how to spend resources, uh, how to spend workers' earnings? And what I propose in the book is, and I've mentioned here, is taking that $4.7 trillion that we spend on healthcare and l putting that in the hands of consumers, letting them control that spending rather than having government control half of it itself and delegate control over another third of it to employers, uh, all whose uh, values might not reflect those of those low-income workers. You trust them with that money, uh, you give that money to them, you trust them to spend it, and they might spend it on things other than health, but they might spend it on things other than health that have a bigger impact on their health mm -hmm. than other uh, than that last increment of health yeah. insurance does, and that's why I think you know why Lauren and I got drawn into this really wonky discussion about what all these studies say. <laughs> My read of all those studies is we can trust consumers with those decisions. Uh, it's it's a little arrogant for me even to say we can trust them. <laughs> is their money and their decisions? They should be able, I think, to make those to control that money, and make those decisions themselves. And if what you worry about is that it's going to have a negative impact on your health, mm -hmm. uh, I think all the evidence points toward the conclusion that it will not have a negative impact. Well, one on thing I, I I have to jump in. I know we want to get to questions, but. I think we in the health policy community, no matter what side of the aisle we're on or wherever we're coming from, we have got to do a better job of asking people what they think. Like it is one thing for us to sit up here and I have, you know, I can say, I have never gone a day without health insurance in my life, you know, knock wood, like I have reasonable amount of security. Like if the copay is $40 instead of $25, like it's not a big deal, you know. Um, I can afford fresh fruits and vegetables. I probably shouldn't buy as many Snickers bars as I do, but that's that's my problem. But like, we have got to do a better job of asking people. And so, you know, one thing just um, to make kind of a shameless plug, but I think it's re relevant here is that um, in the past year, the Alliance has been embarking on this effort to um, that we've been calling envisioning a person first health system. And like, what does that mean? And sort of getting people together in a room to sort of say, well, what does good look like? And you know, as it turns out, when you get payers and providers and pharma and you know, real people, you know, and community leaders together in a room, you know, the articulation is people want a system that's seamless and 
um, easy to navigate, right? Like people want affordability. They want to be able to stay healthy and well and have that be affordable just as much as the care is affordable, right? Now, this isn't based on any kind of polling data. This is kind of based on an idea of like what, what does good look like, right? Like what's the ideal? But I think we need more conversations like that and more of actually bringing in people's voices to have real conversations about what these trade-offs are because fundamentally, um, and this was one of my key takeaways from the pandemic too, fundamentally, I just don't think we have gotten to a place where we agree on the trade-offs and the tensions or have had even a discussion about the tensions between life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like literally those three things which are, you know, might maybe sounds a little lofty. I didn't make I didn't make them up, right? But they're not always aligned. They're in tension with one another. Like my liberty to not wear a mask might impact on your life or your health, right? Like or um vice versa. So like where where are those tensions? Where are those dials? And like, can we have better conversations? And if if anyone out there is funding health policy work, and I'm looking right at you, like, <laughs> please fund more of these kinds of conversations. Like, we need the analysis. We need to get our facts right. Absolutely. But like, people in Washington arguing about what the facts are, you know, which is just layered on top of a pre-existing ideology, is going to get us nowhere as a country. And We've got to find a better way to have a conversation, and we have to start now. That's my pitch. Okay, so I'll go to the questions uh, that we're going to now. If you have a question, uh, if you're in our studio audience here and you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you. I see Joe Antos has a question. Um, I'll take one from the interwebs while we're waiting for the mic to get to Joe. Actually, two questions, uh, one from a staffer in Texas and an anonymous uh, viewer asked basically the same question, which is, uh, what advice do you have for state lawmakers when looking at legislative solutions on the state level? And uh, the book actually has uh, not just chapters devoted to that, but almost every chapter has uh, suggestions for s state legislators. Uh, I'll single out uh, the... The uh, broad stroke suggestion is, is remove regulatory barriers to cost saving and quality improving innovations. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one of them uh, that I think uh, any state could implement tomorrow. Uh, right now, uh, the uh, uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, dramatically increases health insurance premiums for the vast majority of uh, people in those in, in the individual market for health insurance in the United States. Uh, a lot of people choose to go uninsured rather than enroll in that coverage. So people who enroll in, a, in Obamacare coverage and face the full premium without a subsidy uh, uh, often report that it's unaffordable. And so what states can do that wouldn't affect the ACA at all and could even improve the performance of the Obamacare exchanges is free their residents to purchase health insurance that uh, is available in U.S. territories. In 2014, the Obama administration exempted territories from Obamacare's costliest regulations, community rating, guaranteed issue, essential health benefits, and so forth, which means that in, those, in the territories, insurance companies can offer coverage that might cost 50% to the cost of an Obamacare plan or even less. And without the sorts of perverse incentives that the uh, that Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions create to make coverage worse for the sick. And I'm glad that Lauren uh, and I agree 
the, basically what Obamacare does is make coverage worse for the majority of sick people in order to expand coverage uh, for, for a relatively small part of the population. But if states allowed employers and individuals this freedom, then they could purchase uh, less costly plans available in U.S. territories. Uh, and uh, and if they, uh, when they purchase guaranteed renewable policies from territories, they could stay in those plans and pay healthy person premiums after they got sick, which could improve the performance of Obamacare's exchanges by keeping sick people out of those exchanges. So uh, rather than kill those sorts of markets, which is what the Biden administration is currently trying to do, states can expand those markets, give people an alternative to uh, Obamacare plans, which would... Uh, if nothing else, allow us to compare how those markets perform uh, relative to Obamacare. Uh, if you want to respond, Lauren, I can feel you <laughs> champing at the bit, um, and then we'll get to Joe's question. Sure. Uh, I mean, so I think disagree on the, the characterization of my old statement, but that's, uh, I think I'll harp, I mean, you know, I think I'm clearly going to have sort of opposite views on the ACA, or, you know, I think my thing would be expand Medicaid, uh, would be probably on the high list, but... I think it might be helpful to sort of focus on the areas where there, where I think we might agree. Uh, and I just say, I mean, it, you know, Michael teed it up a little bit, but right in the book talks a lot about there are a handful of tend to be state regulations that I think inhibit in competition without the sort of positive sides that I view. So uh, I sort of talked about them a little bit at the outset, but certificate of need laws that, you know, you got to comply with to get competition into the market. A lot of states lately, uh, you know, when there's an anti-competitive hospital merger going on, states will interject to say the, go the federal government can't stop that merger from happening. There are COPA, who cares about acronyms, but basically it is the state protecting two hospitals who want to merge from antitrust uh, scrutiny. Uh, you know, there's any willing provider laws that sort of, uh, there's a lot of state mandates that they put on, you know, they can only regulate the sort of so-called fully insured plans. Uh, they can't tell, they can't tell the sort of employer plans who self-fund what they can sort of pay and stuff like that. But for those plans, there's a lot of man costly mandates that get thrown on them. I actually thought it was very interesting. I read this book a little bit as almost like a uh, proponent of ERISA, which sort of stops the states from being able to tell self-funded plans to what they do. I'm not sure that that's actually uh, probably not his uh, viewpoint, but I have heard it from like Chris Pope and some folks on the right who is sort of the, you know, the argument is, look, states keep putting making health insurance more costly when they uh, get the opportunity to do so, but they can't do that to the self-funded plans. Uh, and that actually, uh, yeah, I think there's a, you know, the freedom on the other side to do what you want as a state, uh, which is an important uh, consideration. But uh, a lot of the points that kind of get teed up are things that only really affect the, the sort of non-ERISA-protected uh, side of things. I'm not even taking a viewpoint yeah. on that, but I, uh, I, I thought that was sort of notable. Yeah. I would say, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say to the questioners, first, I mean, look at what is in your locus of control, right? And there is a lot that states can do. Um, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned certificate of need. You also mentioned scope of practice in the book, licensure, right? Like we've had, we had a lot of um, during the, um, especially during the pandemic, kind of a relaxation of some of the restrictions. You know, telehealth went usage went from like pretty minimal to pretty high. I know that's probably something that um, states like Texas are looking at a lot, especially with a lot of rural areas. Right. I mean, look at the health outcomes in your state and look at like what's driving those health outcomes. Like what is your maternal mortality rate? What is your infant mortality rate? Like look at what you can do from a perspective of life and health to actually um, improve health. And some of that's going to be, um, you know, the, the pieces that Michael and Lauren mentioned around like insurance coverage or 
you know, um, restrictions, but I mean, it's going to be your public health system as well. So um, I think there's a lot that can be done at the state level, and there's also great resources that you can look at from the National Academy of State Health Policy to NCSL and others that have um, research. And then on the risk pooling stuff, I would just say, like, yes, Medicaid is a big, huge thing in the locus, in your locus of control. I'm, you know, the Alliance doesn't advocate for specific policy positions, but I'm just going to point that out. Um, and then, um, you know, look at the American Academy of Actuaries, like look at some of their issue briefs and like really try to understand these issues. So, um, But what I'm yeah. hearing is bro on this panel is broad, pan-ideological agreement. The state should get rid of certificate of need. The state should liberalize clinician licensing, allowing clinicians to practice at the top of their training. Well, I think there's kind of a point where the argument that like we have a shortage of this and that and we're burned out and we can't handle it anymore and then oh but don't let other people you know do <laughs> like like at some point i also have teenagers um and it's my favorite like you know i mean so physicians or maybe <laughs> incumbent clinicians we're likening to teenagers okay joe that tees you up pretty well is it on? Oh, yes. I get okay. trouble for that. <laughs> uh, so uh, I have comments about uh, your first uh, and arguably the most important slide, not the true first, but the first substantive slide, and your last slide, which is arguably the least important slide. So okay. so on the, on the first one, which is, as people may remember, it shows uh, price decreases in markets where uh, their uh, consumers uh, are made aware of prices and have the ability to um, pick uh, who they go to. Um, <clears throat> that's, uh, you know, that's a really good point. Uh, but uh, when I go to the doctor, uh, I don't claim to know all about medicine. Right. And so I think a critical question, which I'd love to hear your comment on, is uh, how do we get doctors on the side of the patients? How do we get doctors to be cost-aware they're cost aware now. They're cost aware on the wrong side. Wrong, you know, it's the wrong sign. We want the right sign. So, uh, actually, I'd love to hear from many of you about how you solve that one. And then on your last slide, uh, you want to pre-fund um, VA, right? And so you're arguing for a trust fund now. How did that work out with the Medicare program? Oh dear Lord, Joe. Uh, Pre-fund through a trust fund, no such thing. Pre-fund? Pre there's, no, there's no such thing as pre-funding. I don't, I don't even refer to the Medicare trust fund as a trust fund because it's no, there's no such thing. So I certainly don't propose creating a new one for the VA. So I'll take your second question first <laughs> since we're here. So the way, and I'm glad you asked. God bless Joe Antos for asking a question about the VA, which everyone seems to think is not that important. It's not really health policy. We'll just shove it over there, which is why it's in such bad shape. But the way I propose in the book, prefunding uh, veterans benefits, is by increasing military pay. Increasing the pay of active duty service members. <coughs> enough so that all of them could buy private life, disability, and health benefits <laughs> from private insurance companies at actuarially fair rates that would cover them the moment they leave the service, that would provide their veterans benefits that way. And if there's an automatic mechanism that says that, that, that ties those increases in salaries to uh, uh, you know, a benchmark premium for people in specific military jobs, 
then when Congress commits troops to battle, or even when the, uh, the president does it without congressional authorization, those insurance companies who are gonna be on the hook for those additional veterans benefits uh, expenses, they're going to increase just their premiums. Okay, Michael, pay Michael, 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 Michael I got, I got, you, I got, I, I, I got your point. Uh, you, you can't, you can't tie pay to the un, unpredictable loss of function that someone uh, incurs we can't, we can't in, tie in, in war. We, we no, no, no. We can't tie so, government payments to but, insurance. No, no, no. This is risk. this. The Affordable Care Act does that all the time. Uh, Raise, raise military pay, and they'll be able to buy the kind of coverage that they need. Serious, uh, life-threatening health problem that they incur in in battle, and I would argue that uh, they won't have enough money to cover that. Uh, and if you're saying that do it through insurance, then I think you're you're adopting uh, Lauren's uh, general point. Um, anyway, which is uh, what? that that you need insurance to cover. I think he's saying to buy insurance. To be fair, I think maybe we're underestimating that's, that's how exactly much well, higher well, military pay. So, you should have so, so you should you should have said that. Military pay goes up sufficient to allow them to buy life, disability, and health insurance. I did say that. Okay. And and then they buy those that coverage, which covers them from the moment they leave the service. And you're right; it might be incredibly expensive, and that's. Good, because we want people whose own money is going to be on the line to be pricing that risk so that Congress gets an accurate picture of the expense, the financial cost to which it is subjecting uh, uh, taxpayers in addition to the risk to life and limb that is going to be uh, – to which it's going to be exposing active duty service members, they don't have that picture right now, which is why Congress is more willing to commit troops to battle than it should be, and why it's more willing to keep them in uh, 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 areas of conflict than it would be if it had to face those costs themselves. Now, you did ask another question. It was about, now I've totally forgotten what the question was. On the first slide, how are we going to get the doctor on Joe Antos's side? Yeah. So I think this will be an answer that appeals to you, Joe, which is that it doesn't matter what, what kind of economic system we're talking about. It could be uh, total uh, free markets on, at one extreme or communism or socialism at the other extreme. Every economic system serves the people that control the money. Right now, government controls half of the money in our health sector directly, another third indirectly by delegating control to employers. The system does not serve uh, the 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 consumer, the patient, because the patient is not the one controlling the money. If the patient is the one controlling the money that purchases their health insurance, then the health insurance uh, uh, mark, the health insurance industry will serve patients in a way that it just doesn't right, right now when it's getting most of its money from the government or from, from employers. That w will lead to more competition for uh, patients on the dimensions of quality that, that, that matter to them. Like, do we have doctors in our networks who actually care about what Joe Antos cares about, who are on Joe Antos's side? Because if we don't, then we are going to uh, lose him to another health plan.
And when people are purchasing their own health insurance, they're probably going to purchase less coverage than they do uh, than they do when government encourages them to purchase more. And so more of the transactions between Joe Antos and his doctor are going to be on a cash basis rather than on a third-party payment basis, which distracts the doctor's attention from what Joe Antos wants. So with that, um, <laughs> uh, if anyone else has uh, wants to respond to Joe, uh, uh, please do, and then we can move on. I'll, I'll just be I'll be, be I'll be very brief, um, and and just say that when we talked about our envisioning person first health system, we also had a panel on workforce, and you know I think people um, in the workforce really do want to be on the side of the patients. It's like what is it going to take to get there? So. Um, happy to follow up with you. We're also having a briefing at um, Reserve Officer Association on November one. Um, on that note, um, right? But like, you're right that they're 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 who, they're frustrated. Considering who they they actually pay for. Yeah. So this is, uh, I would argue, this is an immediate term issue, yeah. not a long term issue that will someday be fixed. Um. Okay. I just say on the note of highlighting areas of agreement, I actually, you know, the economist in me actually kind of likes the aversion of this sort of VA policy. And honestly, regardless of whether it's sort of still done through a public system or through private insurance, I, I do think there is something to upfront funding what is clearly an unfunded liability that is like, it's sort of a weird, right now it's kind of this weird pay as you go kind of system where you're, you're sort of paying for like the last round of uh, you know, but obviously when you are going to war, that raises these premiums, right? Like if you're going to start a war, all of a sudden the premiums for whatever private pal policy is being offered here go up a lot um, for understandable reasons, both short and long term. Uh, so uh, I do think there is some attraction to the sort of, you know, uh, this is, you know, externalities and all economists loves uh, things that they love. So, okay. Um, uh, another question in the audience? Yeah. Perry Young. I have um, an easier question than Joe's, I hope. <laughs> Um, so there's wide agreement that we do need to address healthcare costs. Let's say the easiest piece would be facility fees. Why, why aren't those clear? At this point, we've had the mandate from Congress. We have the hospitals dragging their feet on this. Like, why can't we get the simplest, easiest thing? If you're charging a facility fee, why isn't that right on the front desk? So the most important chart in health policy was largely, about, I think, about facilities fees. And uh, that's how you get them down and how you make them transparent. Uh, right now, uh, uh, Medicare and Congress are struggling mightily to do uh, what uh, price-sensitive consumers did in just a couple of years. The reason they're struggling is because it's not their money and they don't care very much. Uh, if it were their money, then they they would solve this problem as uh, rapidly as consumers did. But uh, of all uh, uh, sectors of the economy, the one that spends the most on lobbying uh, Congress is the health sector. The reason they spend so much money lobbying Congress is because Congress controls so much of that $4.7 trillion sloshing around in the health sector. And those, they're not spending those uh, lobbying dollars in order to get price competition or fiscal rectitude. They are trying to keep their prices high, and every time Congress tries to do something, I think, Lauren, you've been following the progress of the uh, legislation that's trying to reduce site-of-service differentials, which is largely a facility fees yeah. uh, story through Congress, and I'm, I'm just sort of watching from afar, uh, watching that legislation get weaker and weaker and weaker as it moves through the legislative process because the industry is so successful at defanging cost reduction efforts because no one in Congress and no one in Medicare is spending their own money the way that the patients in these 
experiments are. And I should, I should add, this is a point I didn't make about that chart. It also shows why employers, I think, why employers can't bring those, uh, those prices down. Because when employers try to do so, it's much the same situation that members of Congress face. They can maybe exclude a hospital from their network and get the prices down that way. But because the patient or the, the worker, or, which is a, an analog to the taxpayer, uh, does, doesn't see the benefits herself, and so all she sees is the, the hospital I want is not my network anymore. They rebel. They take the side of the hospital who's charging these outrageous fees, and no one can get anything done. So if you give workers the control of the money that purchases their health insurance as well, taking that away from employers, they will be price sensitive when purchasing their health insurance, which will give plans that want to exclude that hospital an advantage in the marketplace and the ability to do so. Lauren? I mean, I just, I, I do enjoy uh, uh, when I ever write tweet about uh, the, the site neutral uh, payment. Uh, Michael Cannon never, inevitably responds with a, a drip, 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 or uh, about wait, waiting for the incoming, uh, the onslaught of lobbying to, to, to weaken the, the proposal. The inevitable failure of the enterprise. Um, mm. I, I would sort of argue that it is this sort of specific policy. To me, this is actually almost all a Medicare issue. I actually think in the commercial market, we're kind of, I think Michael's sort of comments are really focused that it is. It is sort of less of an issue. I, I think there again, there are shoppable services where yes, more, you know, cost sharing would uh, would drive down costs. But largely, this is this is a policy where Medicare set up a what I would consider a dumb policy to pay hospitals more money to do the exact same service as a physician office, uh, and they should just undo that. They're going to get some things right. They're going to get some things wrong. They have been slowly unwinding it, very slowly, because. You know, that's how the government works. Uh, but uh, it, it is, they have been moving slightly in the direction. In theory, there is a proposal out there still live that would take the tiniest of steps further in that direction. But who knows what's going to happen with the shutdown and speaker, and I just lost now. Sarah? I'll, I would just add on, on this or any other issue, right, I would, I would ask, well, what is what are those facility fees subsidizing, and, like, how do you sort of start to untangle the knot, right, of... Um, like, why are they fighting so hard? I, you know, get I, like we can all conjecture, but but the point is, is like it, this is why it becomes like a game of whack-a-mole with like one thing and another thing and another thing, and you know we don't have the holistic conversation. Like you take 340B, like same thing, right? And so, so what distortions is that revealing underneath? And I, you know, Michael's solution is like we'll just give all the money to individual people and let them like let the market sort of figure it out as opposed to like Congress trying to untie the knot. Um, maybe there's something to be said for that. But, you know, I think, again, like if it's facility fees today, it's going to be something else tomorrow and something else the day after that when the reality is we're like dealing with this dynamic system and our policy levers don't always um, account for that or acknowledge that or have a good way of um, dealing with that. Okay, and with that, I th think we have to bring our discussion to a close. I want to remind everybody here at, at Cato and at home, you can order recovery at Cato.org. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Lauren and Sarah for coming here and commenting on the book. I want to thank all of you for attending in person and, uh, and at home or at work. I want to thank Cato's st staff for putting this event together. Um, thank you all so much.